Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, I'm Gemma, and welcome to another episode of Good Influence. This is the podcast where each week you and I meet a guest who will help us pay attention to something we should know about as well as answer some of your questions. This week we're talking about mental health, exploring mental health issues through writing characters, the differences between fact and fiction, and how social media misses out on the middle parts of our lives. So joining me this week is Matt Haig. Matt is an author of 21 books, with his latest book, The Midnight Library, which I'd describe as a sort of fable on life and regrets, currently enjoying a long run on bestseller lists around the world. Matt shares a lot of poignant musings on mental health on his social media channels and is very open with his own experiences of depression, anxiety and panic disorders. His new book, titled The Comfort Book, comes out in July. One thing I'm actually thankful for, if you can be thankful for a breakdown, I'm actually thankful for it because I've known more genuine happiness, more genuine um, gratitude um, this side of being ill than I ever did before. The Midnight Library is about a woman called Nora whose life has been going from bad to worse and I'll read you a tiny bit from the beginning so that you might understand more of what we're talking about in this episode. Between life and death there is a library, she said, and within that library the shelves go on forever. Every book provides a chance to try another life you could have lived, to see how things would be if you'd made other choices. Would you have done anything different if you had the chance to undo your regrets? So bringing a book out in the last year must have been quite different to normal. And I've seen you talk recently about doing book events and promo things and how that's not always your favourite thing. So has that kind of been a good thing that you haven't had to do those events in person well yeah because there's a real um there's a real phobia called glossophobia which is the fear of public speaking and I used to really have that and Mm. I think among British people it's like I think it was a survey done by the BBC and it's like the second biggest fear um that British people have um the first fear was losing someone you love the second fear was fear of public speaking. And that became above in this survey, above the fear of your own death was fear of actual public speaking, which wow. is probably a bit ridiculous, but it says a lot about British people. That so, um, you know, uh, got these silly fears and hangups. But um, yeah, I used to have that. And then um, last year, well, I say last year, when I say last year, I mean 2019, as in the year before, the last time we had a proper year. Um, I, I, I did my because normally with like if you're promoting a book what you have is kind of like tour where it's just me on my own talking so like a stand-up comedian but without the jokes you know so it's just like I don't know like an overlong um, TED talk so I actually think in a way, weird way even though I hated last year it was actually um, better for the book because I, I could actually promote it more comfortably and um, do what I wanted to do and do things internationally without 
leaving my sofa and without having to sort of like do all the travel and all of that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the Midnight Library has clearly not been hindered in any way by a lack of travel or, you know, real life promotion events because it's doing so incredibly well as a book. Yeah. I mean, again, it's like, it's, it is, it is, but because I haven't been leaving my house much, it hasn't, I suppose the one good thing about doing events is you get a sense of, um, I don't know where you're at or how much people are sort of responding to something. Um, and I haven't had any of that. So it hasn't, it's felt, it's felt very abstract, but it's, it's great. Um, but it just means now I've sort of got writer's block because I think, okay, everyone, um, seemed to like that one. And now what do I write? And I, I'm really envious of people who are like, thriller writers and they write sort of like one detective and they keep on mm. going forever and there's no sort of logical I can't really do a sequel to the midnight library I could sort of like do the the midday video store or something I don't know but it wouldn't really work so yeah I've had writer's block and I've just been sort of like crazy so it's actually nice to do a podcast because it sort of feels like work without work if you know what I mean yeah yeah I do get that yeah do you think you are feeling another mental health book coming up or do you think you want to move away for a little bit because I know that's that's something that you've talked about before is you are quite often known as now I guess a mental health writer but that's not actually all that you write about you've written many more books that aren't about mental health than that are about mental health yeah no I mean I suppose like the comfort book I've just written is kind of like the third straightforward mental health book I've done but it's I think my only problem with like being seen solely as a mental health writer is that it places a sort of responsibility on you that I don't have. Like on my social media, like I will talk about mental health a lot, but I'll do it very much on my own terms and relating to my own mental health. My problem is like when you sort of like go into the public sphere or you're on like, I don't know, BBC Breakfast, and instead of introducing you as a writer, they'll say mental health ambassador. And it's like, oh, yeah. I don't, you know, what what am I ambassadoring? What 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 am I? You know, I I'm just I'm not a doctor. I'm not like a neuroscientist. I'm not like a psychologist. You know, my sister's got a psychology degree. I don't have a psychology degree. I've got no. Um, I get insecure about where my authority ends. I'm just someone who went through an experience and wrote about it. Yeah, and he, even the term, even though like my nonfiction books um, are always put in the self help section of a bookshop I think I think self-help is an interesting word because when I think of a self-help book I think of someone who's sort of got the answers or at least pretending to have all the answers and saying you know follow me this is how you do it you know this is what you have for breakfast this is the yoga routine you should be doing um this is the deep breathing exercise blah 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 and I I don't really do any of that I'm just sort of and I'm definitely saying I'm not in the like perfect mental place i'm someone Mm. who still gets anxiety i still get um depression i still get all sorts of things from time to time i'm not as bad as i used to be but i feel like what i do i suppose is try and make people feel a bit less lonely because i'm sort of like i have those issues myself and some of them are still ongoing yeah and i remember going back to the sort of like uh caveman days 20 years ago which you know, it was a very different world in terms of mental health. There was no, well, obviously there was no social media. When I was uh, young and, well, when I was 24 years old, I had my sort of full-blown 
um, breakdown and I was living in Ibiza and I was not living healthily and I didn't know anything about mental health really. I obviously knew the words like depression and anxiety and stuff, mm-hmm. but my first diagnosis was something called panic disorder and I didn't know what that was. I didn't really know what depression was felt like. I just thought like, oh, I'm having this weird experience that no one in the universe has ever had. And um, it sounds so melodramatic, but sometimes um, mental illness gives you very melodramatic thoughts. And I was thinking, oh, I'm just sort of alien and I don't know um, what to do. And there was nothing, there there were books and, and stuff, but they were very like, very hard to read and very academic. And, you know, in the last 10 years, there's been so much in terms of TV and books and social media discourse around mental health, but it's a very different climate. Obviously, we're still in a kind of mental health crisis. And I think the whole pandemic era has um, accelerated that in some ways. But one positive difference is that um, we understand a lot more and we understand when we uh when we get ill, we're not alone in the sense that we know other people are experiencing similar things. And sometimes that in itself is a kind of therapy because that loneliness where you feel like such a freak and you're sort of, you know, that, that, that is horrible. And I, you know, I, I sometimes wonder if instead of getting ill in the year 2000, 1999, if I'd have got ill sort of like 10 or 15 years later, would it would have been, um, different in any way because I can really remember that feeling of being just me you know just me and looking totally normal looking like just your average young man but feeling like an absolute Martian yeah yeah I mean I feel like that's where the Midnight Library has really kind of spoken to people and resonated with people because even though you know it is fiction it's quite it's it's you wouldn't look at it and say that's a self-help book there's still a lot of themes through it that do make you think about your own life and I think the way that that's different and has maybe been more accessible to people is that I guess if you have self-help books or books written by psychologists or therapists that you can kind of feel it depends what you're looking for I think if you're not ready to read something that's heavier that kind of explains more of why you feel like you do sometimes you just want to read about someone who also feels the way you do and kind of work through those emotions with them. Would you say that's something you've done writing characters dealing with mental health issues? Definitely. I mean, The Midnight Library is interesting because it's a female protagonist. And and a lot of the times I get that awkward question, you know, like you're a male writer, you're writing um, female protagonist. Why did you make that decision? And the interesting thing about The Midnight Library is when I wrote the first draft, um, Nora was male. I was writing this male character, and I knew there was so- something wrong with it because when you're writing a book, and if the char- if your central character, you keep on changing the name of your central character. So this was like an Adam. This was like a Joe. This was like I don't know different names, and I just couldn't see the central character. And I think what the problem was I was writing myself. I was writing this sort of like I don't know it, this depressed male um you know 40 year old right person and it was me I was writing myself mm. and it's like almost if you um not that you should ever do this unless you're a narcissist but if you stare at your face in the mirror too long mm. you you can't actually see um 
see what you look like and you can never be someone else looking at you um so you don't know what you look like whereas um with the midnight library I, I was doing that to the book i was sort of writing myself but sometimes when you actually write yourself it doesn't work because certainly not in fiction because you're too close and it's like having your nose against the paint painting and you can't see the whole picture because your face is right there so you have to sort of step back from the painting and see it. So by making the central character evidently not me, I could actually, in a weird way, put more autobiography in there, put more of my own mental health experiences in there. Mm. Like the first first section of the book before it becomes a fantasy is her just sort of um, feeling depression. Her, her, she's feeling like she's in a lot of dead ends in life, dead end job, relationships that haven't worked, um, uh, parents, grieving parents, and she feels like she's left her parents down even from beyond the grave. Um, all of these sort of issues, pet dies, all of these little triggers that have sort of accumulated and she's got this kind of situational depression relating to. And that was very much like me when I was younger and I had this sort of job I didn't like in Croydon, just doing this telesales job. And I was just sort of like... Um, just felt very alone and sort of, I can remember the sort of grey skies that was working there every winter. And I just put all of that in, into her character. Obviously, if you're writing, um, a different, a different gender, then you, you're having to be aware of that and sensitive to that. But it, it was kind of like freeing. It was like a green card, like, oh, this person isn't me. So I can actually turn this into a therapy session and sort of pour, pour out all my, um, thoughts and memories yeah almost maybe kind of less self-conscious because you know it isn't you so you can put yeah. it all onto them I wonder if so you've obviously had a lot of, because it's fiction you have a lot of you can basically do anything you want with writing fiction I, I imagine and kind of there's a lot of different things that you can explore the way that a character feels or the way that you feel how different do you find it writing mental health based fiction as opposed to writing um non-fiction books about mental health is there a big difference for you in writing them yeah because um when you're writing a memoir when you're writing about your own life um you're writing about real people obviously you're writing about your mum and dad you're writing about your partner you're writing about your friends and what i found really hard of reason to stay alive is balancing total honesty with real world consequences so you, <laughs> And mm. like just simply the act of writing Reasons to Stay Alive created a little, you know, few issues from my parents' perspective because they, they really are pleased I've done it and they're pleased it helps people and stuff. But they were, I think from a parent's perspective, and this is to do with mental health stigma as well, and it's a wrong perspective, but it's an understandable perspective. It's almost like they feel like it's a judgment. It's like, uh, oh, you know, oh, you know, possibly things we could have done better or this, that, and the other. So my mum in particular is very sensitive about that because my mum had postnatal depression and um, she's had her own uh, mental health issues herself. So I had a lot of that in my mind um, when I was writing it. And even though I was being ridiculously careful when I wrote Reasons to Stay Alive to say the right thing, I can remember the first interview I ever did about it and I wasn't really that used to interviews at the time because Reason Stay Alive was the first book that people sort of read in any kind of numbers. First interview, I think it was The Guardian or something. But um, literally about two questions in, they said, on page 79 or whatever, 
you say your dad says um you know come on Matt you've got to pull yourself together do you think it's wrong when people say you know pull yourself together or whatever and yes my dad did literally say that sequence of words at one point during a very intense but but my dad is not you know he he's he's the sort of most gentle loving uh man there is and yet there was one point when he was frustrated and my parents had their own issues going on and he he kind of was right i mean you do want to reach out and say come on you've got to find the tools within you and pull yourself together but how it came across on the page you know it's just a bit too short i didn't contextualize it enough and i still feel a bit weird about that and obviously when you're writing fiction you don't have any of that so you can actually be more truthful about stuff yeah you can you can write all kinds of issues you can you you know if someone's really annoyed you in life you can you can like change change their gender change their name change their age um change their location and you 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 can you can get your revenge on someone you can do literally (laughs) anything in fiction and it has no no real world consequences whereas obviously if you're writing non-fiction um you can't because you have to think of that there's a I, I can't remember who said it but there's a great quote about writing memoirs and they say for any good memoir any good memoir has to betray someone and i you know i, I think there's some truth in that but with reasons to stay alive the person i wanted to betray was myself i just wanted to sort of like be as honest and open um with myself i didn't want to actually hurt anyone else obviously mm. Yeah, I mean, that is difficult. And it's, I I guess it must be just a hard line to tread, really, between saying what you need to say to either get it off your chest or be truthful in a memoir. And yeah, you can't, you know, you can't put in a book every conversation you've ever had with someone on mental health. But yeah, that, that I can imagine, you know, there's definitely times and I've had it happen where it's people you love and yeah they don't always say exactly the right thing but it just it makes me think of we did um the first episode in this season of the podcast was with a psychologist called Dr Soph um and she was talking about how the way that we work is like we feel the emotions of other people and kind of mirror them so when you see someone who you love who is clearly suffering and you know in quite a bad way that is very distressing for you as well so i think it's reasonable that you know, your responses to someone might not always be the exact right thing to say. And also, let's be honest, it, it, it is. And I know because I've not only been an ill person, I have looked after people who've gone through mental um, stuff and um, known people. And it's not easy. It's not easy when someone's got this invisible thing that you can't feel, but you sometimes think, well, they're not doing the things that we need to do to sort of like help themselves. Because by the nature of depression or whatever. The trouble is, depression is like this ultimate vicious circle because you feel what you need to do, you have zero motivation to do it. And also often you don't feel like you deserve it. You you don't feel like you deserve to get yourself better. So Mm -hmm. you're in this situation where it's all right for someone like saying, oh, you know, you need to get out and go running every morning or you need to sort of do yoga or you need to, uh, even sometimes you need to go to the doctor. You know, people are like, well, why i don't deserve anything I'm, i don't belong here and, and and you know that's the symptom of depression is to not want to help yourself which is yeah. why it's so important even doing something simple like like start at the bare minimum of self-care you know getting out of bed and then you know washing yourself brushing your teeth doing the very very fundamental basic stuff can be so important because then you can sort of build from there 
you know, don't start off with training for a half marathon or doing whatever, you know, just, just start with, the, start with the very, very simplest, um, things and it's uh, small steps you know because i think another thing about um, mental health nowadays is we're living in an age of instant gratification and instant everything mm-hmm. and recovery recovery there isn't really a switch um which you flick and compress and swipe and then you're like whoa i'm better you know you you ha- recovery requires patience and it requires an acceptance that it won't be a straight line and there will be dips and I used to really struggle with that because I had this very sort of primitive view of health where you were either a 100% well person or you were 100% sort of mentally ill person and I didn't see the sort of scale where you're all kind of in the middle. And obviously, if you're ill, you're crossing a line that way. But there's always, you know, we're never in a state of um, perfect mental well-being. And it's something we have to tend to. But so my problem used to be that, oh, I haven't had a panic attack for three days, and I'm feeling quite neutral. So I must be better. And then what would happen is like a week later, I'd be in a I don't know, a shopping centre or somewhere, somewhere with no natural light and there'd be crowds of people around. And I'd just have a full-blown panic attack. And then I think, oh, I'm not better. I'm totally ill. And then it would be like, yeah. I think I put in Reasons to Stay Alive what it used to feel like. It used to feel like, you know, when you get a little drop of ink and it can be a tiny drop of ink, but you put it into water and then the water changes totally. And it used to be like that. You'd have one little offset and then everything would change and you'd be back to square one. So I think... You know, for me personally, and this is just subjective, for me personally, it's been more helpful to um, not see myself in terms of being 100% better. It's because there's a sort of da- very sort of like binary thing of like better, not better. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's not helpful. It's fluid, like everything else is fluid. And, and you, you, you've just sort of like got to accept all the little um variations and not real not and feel like it's you know the way i got over panic disorder was actually accepting panic attacks because for a while i was agoraphobic and i literally couldn't um leave the house and that's one of the reasons i started being a writer because obviously being a writer you don't need to leave the house and um i had to get to a point where i knew if i left the house i would probably have a panic attack but still want to leave the house. So you ha- mm. it's a very hard thing because panic attacks, a full-blown proper medical panic attack is, you know, one of the worst experiences you can have. Um, so to actually get to a point where you're willing willing to have one is kind of like a contradiction in terms. But panic also is fueled by worrying about it. So you have to somehow like play a sort of like psychological game with the panic, like, Say, okay, this is going to be horrible, but I'm going to do it. And I'm going to test and see how I do it. So it might be a horrible feeling, but there might be some positive out of it in terms of how I handled it or something else. And then you can sort of like, and and, and you realize quickly, like still today, I can sometimes feel like the onset of a panic attack. And I just try, I've got to a point now where I just like, I either lie down or whatever, and I just think, right, bring it on. I'll, I'll see how I handle it. And very often it doesn't turn into a panic attack because you're sort of trying to invite it, which is a very hard thing to do. But it, it, it it's a sort of like, it fits the sort of psychology of panic, I suppose. Yeah. I, could, well, I mean, I, 
I can imagine that's an incredibly difficult thing to do. I've only ever had one panic attack, touch wood, and it would be the kind of thing where for years I'd, I would have had what I would now describe as an anxiety attack and kind of be a bit like hyperventilating or all the things that go along with that. And somebody would say to me like, oh, oh, like she's having a panic attack or something. And then I had a panic attack and I was like, whoa, like that is a totally different beast. Like people who deal with that yes, more often. Yeah. I, I feel like it took me weeks to recover, honestly. Yeah. And, and because I, that's another thing with mental health, isn't it? We use words like panic attack I, flippantly. Like you lose your car keys or house keys and like, oh, Oh, but I'm having a panic attack because I haven't got, and it, that's not a panic attack. That's just like no. whittling and being stressed. But an actual panic attack is so strange. And that's why I didn't know I was having a panic attack because I thought, you know, panic attack sounds almost like a comical little thing. You're, ha- you're in a flat, you're having a panic attack. No, panic attack is like, and also this idea that you, they always last just 10 minutes. You know, my first panic attack lasted a week. I couldn't sleep. And, you know, I went, oh, God. I, I, this was when I was in Spain and it, you know, it was, it would fluctuate between different states, but I was just in this, uh, because I'd had various mental health issues, I think I was ignoring and I was drinking too much and uh, all kinds of things I did when I was younger and I wrote about reasons to stay alive, including drugs and everything else. And I was masking a lot of stuff and then it all, um, kicked off in my head and mm. I was just, my body just couldn't cope so it was it was literally breaking down at the age of 24 years old and it took a long 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 intense um time to get over that but yeah as you say it's when you first get a panic attack it's uh, a very how, how did your was your did yours just sort of fade, did you get control of that panic attack when you were having it did you breathe through it how did you how did that disappear um i mean i literally thought that I was dying it because I'd never had one before it was horrendous so I had my one and only touchwood panic attack in the crowd for Craig David at Glastonbury in oh, wow. I want to say 2016 or something like that and basically I'd I'd got separated from my friends and the people I was with and I was trying to get to them in the crowd and i I don't, I feel like some, if you don't like crowds, you won't like listen to this next minute. Just skip 30 seconds. Um, but yeah, it was, I couldn't get any further into the crowd. And then I was like, right, this is too much. I need to get out. But I turned around and the people in the crowd, they wouldn't let me out either. So I was just completely trapped. Oh, um, no. And then, yeah, I went full pins and needles. I felt like our tag was awful. Luckily there, there were some girls who were like, who I got stuck next to. And they kind of looked at me and went, are you okay? And I kind of like was clearly not okay. And then they like, they took my phone and called my boyfriend and it took him so long to try and get to us in the crowd. But then, yeah, eventually, eventually he got there and then I just cried for the next like two hours. Oh. But yeah, I could, I would not go back in a crowd for the whole rest of the weekend, which was uh, not ideal when you're at a music festival, <laughs> but That's I got through it. Yeah. It, was, it was okay. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. I, I totally relate to that because mine are so triggered by crowds too. And it's, I think it's that feeling like, well, all, all panic and all anxiety, you know, some psychologists say is about lack of control and that in both situations, you feel very sort of powerless sometimes, don't you? And, you're, and, and like, especially if the people that you rely on to help you aren't there and then you get into a real um, fluster. Yeah, those sort of things are horrible. I, I couldn't do, um, 
I couldn't do crowds for a long time. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't go to a, a concert or a nightclub or, you know, for many, many um, years. Mm-hmm. Even loud music was like one of my triggers because I'd gone, and that's why it was so hard for my partner, Andrea, as well, because um, I'd gone from being one type of boyfriend to being the exact opposite type of boyfriend. You know, if I, I was that annoying boyfriend who would like want to stay out till like, yeah oh two in the morning come on you know this is far too early to go home and like you know it's gonna get and i'd gone from that to being someone who who couldn't like walk to the corner shop on their own and never wanted to go out and could only just about listen to some really slow music like classic fm or something and you know so i'd gone from one extreme to absolutely the other and i've slowly gravitated back i think to somewhere in the middle but yeah but for andrea it was um very very uh i think that was one of the hardest things because like um yeah she thought well you know i used to say let's go home early let's not go out let's just stay in and like now you're saying we have you know so uh, that that's i've got lots of guilt about that era in our relationship yeah it's it's very difficult like yeah, because things do just affect people around you. And I think, yeah, it's something you almost have to let go of at some point, but it is, it's it's difficult. It sounds like such a contrast of, and obviously like we all do more things when we're younger anyway, but it sounds like going from a very big, loud life, if you like, and being like super busy, being out all the time, mm. not sleeping, doing all the stuff. And now I feel like the stuff that you talk about is very, it always strikes me of that very sort of mindful way of living and kind of it doesn't, Mm. not that you, not that it's a small life now, if you know what I mean, but you notice the small things within your life. And I feel like that comes across a lot in your writing and even the things that you post on social media as well. Totally. As a younger person, I I found it very hard to be inside myself. I honestly think if you'd have asked me like a year before I became ill, when I was 23 years old, if I was a happy person, I would have genuinely said, yes, I'm a happy person. Like I'm the life of a party. I, I love, you know, but my idea of happiness then was tend to be about escaping myself in some way. So whether it be literally holidays or whatever, or it'd be sort of like um, getting drunk or, you know, like I, there's a, because I'm, I'm quite an old person, Gemma. So I remember like growing up and reading um, magazines like Smash Hits. And there used to be one, which you probably haven't heard of because it's way before your time called Lookin Magazine. And they, I can remember reading an interview with Madonna. I think it was with Madonna. And there was a story about her when she first went to New York and she just said, and it sounds like a sort of made-up story, but she said to the taxi driver, um, "Take me to the center of everything." <laughs> and so okay. he probably dropped he probably dropped her off in Times Square or something. I don't know, but um, and she'd just been this sort of like uh, girl from a small town going to. And um, I used to think, yeah, take me to the center of everything. So like growing up in the nineties, like you know, take me to a beefer, and you know. Out of loudest noise and everything. Uh, having said that, I was always like, I, I was the last person on earth. I mean, no one should take drugs, but I was the last person on earth who should have ever taken drugs or should who should have ever drank to excess. Because my, I'm like, I, I am, I'm just going to sound silly here, but I am a really like sensitive person. And 
things really affect me. So I was actually kind of this like sort of like gentle, fragile, sensitive person doing very excessive um, rock and roll things that I sh- really wasn't cut out to be doing. And I think that's one of the reasons I um, became ill. But yeah, nowadays, one thing I'm actually thankful for, if you can be thankful for a breakdown, I'm actually thankful for it because I've known more genuine happiness, more genuine um, gratitude um, this side of being ill than I ever did before. You know, when I was younger, everything had to be right ramped up to 10, in loudest music, spiciest food, most intense sort of like Tarantino movies, uh, you know, novels by Brett Easton Alice or whoever, you know, these extreme novels and everything had to be like extreme and intense. And um, yeah, I, I totally pendulumed the other way. And now I'm, I, I feel like I can feel like intense. Um, like my daughter's, uh, there's these sort of like packs where you get caterpillars and they become butterflies and then you release them into the garden. And mm. that's what we've done this week. And I, I'm going to sound really sort of silly and hippie, but you can you can have in, intense experiences just looking at a butterfly. You can have like an intense experience um, walking down the street and the cloud goes back and the sunshine's there. And I feel like often um, on social media, you see a lot of intense and extreme lives and you can imagine that you should be feeling that and there's some sort of like failure if you're not having these most, you know, you're not, traveling to the most exotic destinations and this other other. and i think it's worth reminding ourselves that actually the most wonderful things about being alive on this planet are available to most of us uh, a lot of the time obviously you know we all need the basics of life and we all need food and shelter and all of that but beyond that once you've got that a lot of the most wonderful things um about being a human are involve just being a human and just sort of like talking to someone you love um you know walking out on a on a summer's day um you know stroking a new dog that you've not seen you know all of these things mm. are beautiful wonderful things and if if we were on a planet where we didn't have any of those things this would be winning the lottery this would be the thing this would be yeah. the prize you know what i mean and i feel like sometimes we're in this world where we we feel a lack you know and you know if we're not we don't look a certain way we're not super famous we haven't got millions of um social media followers or whatever it was this kind of like feeling of of ordinariness as somehow failing which i think you know we need to work against because it doesn't actually help anyone it doesn't help the people who've got a lot of things either because because it it means that you you can forget um, certain things and I've known in my life because I've been in various situations where I felt like I've had nothing and then I felt like I've had all my dreams come true and this that and the other and actually you you need underneath it all the sort of consistency you need to to have to realize that actually the best of life is sometimes the things you had all along that is kind of I feel like one of the the themes in the midnight library is kind of just getting you to look at your life and see just kind of reframing I think it was I'm I'm gonna misremember this but it was I think a line from the book where you were saying it's not what you're looking at it's what you see Mm -hmm. which is really kind of about our own perspective and yeah how you look at things making a massive difference yeah totally and I feel like I I was um 
I was someone who was very bad at that, who always saw everything as half empty. Mm. And um, it took me a, a long time to be grateful for it. I've noticed it in my career as well at the start when I was a writer and a struggling writer. And I did sort of 10 years sort of like writing away and, and no one sort of like paying any attention. I would always look up to the people who were doing better inverted commas, doing better than me and selling more books than me. And I'd never look around at where I was or be grateful because I can remember um, being an unpublished writer and saying, right, all I want is to have a book published and then I'll be happy. If I see my book in a shop somewhere, that's enough for me. That's fine. And what happens is my book came published. Um, it was in the shops and that happiness lasted for about two weeks and then you have a new goal. You say, well, I want to be a best-selling writer. And then then you work towards that, you work towards that, you become a best-selling writer and um, the books becomes in the top 10. And you think, oh, now I want to be a number one best-selling writer. And you always move the goalposts and, and wherever you are in life. And so you look at someone who seems to achieve loads of things and you think, oh, they must be happy with that. But if, you, if you're of that mentality, where you're on, continually moving the goalposts, you'll always be in that um, system of moving the goalposts. There's always yeah. a next level. And I think forward momentum is great and having ambition is great and having dreams is great and you know working towards do, doing fun things is great. But at the same time, we also need to sort of look sideways sometimes and actually appreciate the point we're in now. So I think it's not about totally living in the present 100% because what would that be like you know you, you do have to think of consequences and how you're going to pay the rent and everything else but you, you need that balance between um, some sort of drive and forward thinking while also being able to appreciate it. whereas before I was all drive all forward thinking and never sort of looking around at stuff and I'm trying to get better at that yeah it, it's difficult it makes me think of how you kind of try and balance that out and the kind of it being good to have ambitions and it being good to go after things and to push yourself in a way. When we talk more recently about not necessarily pushing yourself into situations that are going to make you feel uncomfortable from, for example, an anxiety point of view and even the conversations that have been happening uh, very recently about tennis for example that have kind of then kicked off another conversation and yes it's not always the case that we should have to push ourselves into things that are bad for our mental health but I feel like I sometimes struggle then with what is me unnecessarily stressing myself and what is me holding myself back because I don't want to push myself out of my comfort zone yeah, I've had a lot of conversations this week because, uh, you know, recently with the Naomi Osaka conversation around um, having to do press as part of the tennis career uh, and lots of people saying, well, that's just part of the job and lots of other people saying, yeah, but this is a new world where we're sensitive to mental health and stuff. And I think mm. I know in my own life but yes, part of my recovery, part of my widening of life has been making sure I do stuff. As I said earlier about agoraphobia, that makes me uncomfortable. But there's a difference between that and other people expecting you to do things that make you uncomfortable 
because they don't actually recognize what you're going through as a problem. That's, you know, so it's sort of like pull your socks up, you know, grow up, you know, that sort of old sort of fashioned attitude to, to mental health. Oh, you're just too fragile, you know, just, just grow up. It's good for you. Um, so I think, I think you're absolutely right. I, but I think the key thing is that has to somehow come from yourself. Obviously, other people can tell you, you know, this kind of like exposure will help you and do that. And it's absolutely true that anxiety is made worse by avoiding absolutely everything um, that makes you uncomfortable. But it's about, I, I think how I do it is I think, if I didn't have anxiety about this, is this something I would actually want to do? So like, yeah. I, I did this with the sort of like when I did my um, very unfunny stand-up comedian, that wasn't a stand-up comedian tour, um, going around uh, places in 2019 and to talk to sort of hundreds of people at the time. And I thought, you know, actually, if I didn't have anxiety, I'd actually like to be the sort of person who could walk on a stage and do that. And it'd be, it'd be a fun thing to do. And it, it so I knew that it was going to make me super nervous. And I knew I'd feel a bit nauseous before I went on stage and stuff like that. But I thought, you know, I want to be the person who's done that. And I thought, I'd rather actually one or two of these events goes badly than to be the person who could never do that so that was my sort of rationality and I think a lot of it's about being less perfectionist if you actually accept that things you know you can do some if you if you give up that fear of failing or that fear of looking silly sometimes then you can actually do all kinds of um things and if you actually give up the idea of thinking well I'll only do things that don't make me nervous and actually do things that make you nervous, but not because they make you nervous, because you'd actually want to do them. So you don't want to be nervous about them. That's different to, I think, um, someone else telling you or an employer telling you, you have to do this or you should do this. Yeah. I mean, e- even in like the book world, you know, my, my publishers, they're very sort of like intelligent people, very open-minded liberal people. There still have been times I felt pressured to do things that, I genuinely did not really want to do mm. or um you know like it, with media now I mean you don't you, you it, it's not you know it's not like being a film star or something you don't get masses and masses of sort of tv exposure or anything but there are still like newspaper interviews that you don't want to do um I only do things I want to do now but but sometimes they, they still make me nervous but it's I do them because um I want to do them and obviously Talking to you, Gemma, is a, a nice thing to do. So, oh, thank I'll you very much. Agree to do that. <laughs> I agree um, to this. <laughs> yeah, I have not. I have not got your arm twisted behind your back. Behind no. Your <laughs> yes, and it didn't come from my publisher, so it's not like something I feel obliged to do. And I think, like when you do stuff that you don't feel obliged to do, it just feels it's more relaxing uh, process. But yeah, so it's it's that balance. I, I think, like for. There's, a, there's a, a, a balance between, I suppose you could call it self-improvement and self-acceptance. And there are sort of two things I see a lot of, certainly like among Instagram and, um, you know, social media, the more sort of like mental health end of it. But so it seems to be two sort of movements. One, which is very about accepting all your flaws, accepting you physically and mentally 
and socially exactly as you are. And mm-hmm. then there's the one that's about drive and about you can do anything and you go get them and, you know, you, you, you can do this. And I think it's not either or. You, you kind of need a balance of that. You, you, you can have that sort of drive and you can be that sort of arrow pointing in that direction. But you also... Um, have to have to have acceptance and gratitude for where you are and what you've got. And if you lose sight of either one, I think it can be a bit um, dangerous. But yeah, so like many things, it's it's both and rather than either or. Yeah, that's what I feel like with social media is kind of what you were saying earlier. There's not much average medium in between. It's all very extreme and either and not always in a bad way either because. Obviously, some you want to celebrate your wins or whatever on social media. Of course you do. But also, you do get, I don't know, a lot of stuff that's shared where you show the real difficulties and the darker bits, which is so, so valuable. But still, it means you don't really have much of the middle, in-between, average, yeah. just okay bits. Because you feel like that's that's what makes up the, the vast majority of our lives, I would say. But that's the bit that you're like, oh, well, that's boring. Nobody will want to hear that. That is such a good point, actually. Because I was thinking, and, and that extends to everything. That extends to politics. It extends to all walks of life. Like everything has to, you know, there's no middle ground on social media sometimes. So. You, it, it's either like you know, totally accept me as as I am, and these these are the literal scars I've got, and this is the thing I've got, and, and, and everything else, and, or you know, I'm thinking of like those classic ones of like makeovers, and then they so so someone I don't know wearing makeup or with a perfect body, and then then they'll show the real version, and I feel like the whole of social media is like that. It's like. Um, it's either the sort of like extreme facade that's unrealistic to attach or it's the total ugly behind the scenes. And there's no, you know, just gentle sort of being and how, how life is. It's always got to be sensational because I suppose on in the social media world, everyone's competing for attention. We have too much stuff. There's too much people. Um, my favourite, I won't turn this into a boring lecture, but my favourite fact um, was... Uh, uh, I, some guy who's a professor at uh, Oxford University. I, I think he's um, from the olden days, so I don't think he's alive now. But he came up with this idea of 150 being the number of people you're meant to know during your life in any meaningful way. You're meant to only know about 150 people. And this became known as Dunbar's number. And you can sort of Google it and see your Wikipedia page. And and this number, 150, came from the idea that if you go back like hundreds of years to the average size of a village, the average size of a community, even today among sort of indigenous people, you know, the size of a sort of community that happens in nature will be around 150 people. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and, and that would be pretty much everyone you would know in your life. You wouldn't come into contact with people um, 50 miles that way or 50 miles that way. You'd know about 150 people. So our brains have evolved um, to know about 150 people within our life in any kind of meaningful way where you'd more than just a wave, you'd actually sort of converse with them. Whereas now, of course, you can you can open an app while you're still in bed in a morning. And before you've even had breakfast, you could see as many new faces as a pers- our, our, our equivalent selves 500 years ago would have known in their entire lifetime. So before yeah. we were even out of bed, we'd have like, 
you, you know, you can go through Instagram and see, you know, you could scroll down and you'd see like 150 new faces. And which, you know, in one sense, it's wonderful. But in another sense, it's overload. We're kind of like, um, we're kind of like really like primitive um, computers. that have got this most remarkable modern software, but it's sort of overloading, overloading us. And we're not quite equipped for it. So sometimes I think um, the things that are best for us aren't solutions that we're, we add. It's things that we sort of, strip back and take away it's like deciding mm. to come off like one social media platform it's it's switching off our notifications it's um not over committing in terms of workload it's not it, it, it's ter- risking looking a little bit rude and turning down some invitations we can't do often the solution obviously there's no money in solutions which require saying no to things but often the solution for ourselves is actually less you know it's stripping back you know and that that's the solution um environmentally um you know in terms of eco things but all kinds of things it's it's just about less and i think mentally as well um we need to find the sort of like i don't know acoustic version of our lives you know the sort of strip back simpler versions sometimes many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care plush care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey they can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wagovi and zep pound for those who qualify plus they accept most insurance plans to get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Every week, my guest and I will be answering your questions. And the first one comes in from Amelia. And she says, I've just finished listening to the Midnight Library and I went to sleep in blissful sobs. I couldn't help but wonder whether you believe in assimilation theory and whether perhaps you've experienced a dream like the story of Nora that inspired your book. So I'd not heard of assimilation theory, so I looked it up for this question. And as it pertains to sleep, I think it's the idea that, you know, our dreams are used to process our memories, kind of particularly our emotional memories. So I guess, yeah, her question was, have you ever experienced a dream like the one from your book? Um, yeah, I love the idea of blissful sobs. I think that's what I, I think that's <laughs> what I try and do. Make people feel sad, but also happy. Um, uh, I didn't have a dream about the Midnight Library as such. Um, I didn't, it didn't come to me in a dream. I think though, when you're writing fiction, you, you get into this sort of like trance-like state. I think the real joy of a writing a made-up story, certainly a fantasy story, mm. is that you get into a point where you're almost having sort of like this weird meditation and you're sort of like, you don't plan what you're 
writing. Um, you obviously have to do a bit of planning, but once you're in the total flow, you're kind of, it's almost like you're reading your own story as you're writing it, if that makes sense, where you don't actually know what's happening and you're sort of like jotting down what's in your head. And it's very nice um, experience. And I love that. And I sort of live for that in writing, which you get in the first draft sometimes. Mm. Um, but no, it wasn't a dream. I am someone who's obsessed with parallel lives and things like that. But I think that comes back again to mental health because when I was very um, ill, I'd always torment myself with regrets. I thought, oh, if I only had done this, or if only I hadn't been so stupid and like, uh, you know, and unhealthy, if only I'd have uh, had a, more confidence in when I did this or whatever. And I was always sort of fantasizing about another life where I, I did things differently. And mm. I think the answer I was trying to do with Midlight Library is actually, yes, okay, we're, we're stuck in this universe. We're stuck in this um, simulation, if it's a simulation, and we're stuck in this life. But actually that doesn't narrow us down in any way because in any moment we we can enter a different universe simply by doing something a different way. So that's not entirely um, an answer to that question, but um, it, it, that's what that sparked me off thinking. <laughs> I, I think that's fair. <laughs> Thank you. Um, okay, so next question is from Lainey who says, I would love to know Matt's thoughts on how to move past regrets of life when we don't have the opportunities nor how to live out regrets in the Midnight Library. I find I often get caught up in what my life could have been and forget to live the life that I have. Um, yeah, is this, who, who's this, Lainey? Lainey, yeah. Lainey, okay, that's a really good question. I like that question. Um, and it's something, you know, I have to work on myself. And I think one of the reasons I wrote Midnight Library is because I'm sometimes very bad at this. I'm someone who, who finds it very easy to live into the past live inside the past or either that or to worry about the future. And um, I think those things are totally natural and human things to do. Um, I think what it is, though, is actually to realise, actually, we don't know. We don't know if things would have been better if we'd have done it a certain way, if we'd have stayed in a certain relationship or left a certain relationship or taken a job or done better in our A-levels or whatever it is. We don't ever know. You know, everything's an estimate of what would make our life good or what would make our life bad. So even if we're having a hard time in life, it doesn't mean that we wouldn't be having a hard time if we'd have lived our life another way. And that is actual, you know, that's pretty logical stuff, but it's very easy to forget that. So when I was writing The Midnight Library, I was trying to remind myself more than anyone that actually, you know, if I'd have kept up my piano lessons you know I probably wouldn't have turned into Elton John anyway so you know it, it's fine that I stopped playing the piano at the age of 13 or whatever so I think it's accepting that actually you know everything we need is often right in front of our nose and uh, also wherever we're at in life whatever age we're at in life you know there's and still an infinite amount of possibilities in terms of what we do and yeah uncertainty i think uncertainty is the answer because in in um western um countries like uk and america and everywhere we're, we're encouraged to have the idea that uncertainty is this negative thing mm -hmm. and i actually think actually uncertainty is the nature of life and uncertainty is also the nature of hope um hope exists hope is never a certain thing. It's always uncertain. So even if we've got something bad happening in our life, or even if we've got a 
something in the diary, like a hospital appointment or something ahead, um, which we're dreading, um, the, there's a degree of uncertainty around it. Um, not in terms of it happening necessarily, but in terms of how we will respond to it or how um, we will react or what will happen because of it. Um, I know in my own life that some of the very, very worst days in my life, some of the way, very worst experiences in my life have actually led to some of the very best things in my life um, further mm. down the line. And by the same token, some of the things I've really dreamed of having or really, really wanted, when you get them, you you become disillusioned and you think, oh, actually, not so great. And it's caused this problem or that problem. So it's that uncertainty about everything. You don't know what bad experience is actually going to lead to experiences that are less bad or quite good. And you don't know if you'd have lived your life another way, what would happen. So it's embracing that uncertainty, basically. That was a very waffly answer. I'm sorry, um, Lainey, but um, yeah, uncertainty. Yeah, I think it reminds me of, I think I feel like it was one of the first things that I talked about when I started going to therapy a few years ago, when uh, my therapist was kind of trying to teach me to observe thoughts as they come in rather than and you know just get used to what you're thinking so in that same way sort of categorizing thoughts then is the next thing of like okay I'm I'm anxious about something am I anxious about the future am I worrying about something am I anxious about the past like and just noticing when those things happen to you I found really useful because even just noticing and saying oh I'm worrying about something that happened in the past when you notice that it's happening and then it kind of goes away and leaves you again. I found that quite helpful in yes, just not dwelling on it quite so much. Like, yes, I've thought about it. Okay, It's fine that I've thought about it because we all think about lots of things, but it doesn't have to then ruin the rest of your day. Yeah, absolutely. You don't have to worry more about the worry. You can just let the worry be. Like that's like, you know, like anxiety is often fueled because you're anxious about the anxiety or you're depressed about yeah. the depression. And if you can sort of step out of that and actually be accept all that negativity i i think it helps also to see yourself as having these sort of weather systems where you'll have these sort of gloomy patches or patches of regret but understand it's like a storm or you know like going through a period of low pressure it's like weather the weather will eventually change but you you don't change it by trying to sort of run away from you kind of have to accept that weather and understand that you aren't necessarily the same thing as the feeling you are the Mm -hmm. person having the feeling but just as you aren't the hurricane if you're caught in a hurricane that i'm not diminishing hurricanes but you're not the hurricane um you're not the things you're feeling however intense they are that's very good yeah i like what you said there jim thank you next question is from cara and she says hello i've always struggled with being socially anxious it's been my biggest insecurity for the longest time and now things are starting to open up again and people are getting together again i feel as though my social anxiety is even worse than it was before do you have any tips for calming down anxiety when I'm out and about? I feel like I've tried everything. Um, yeah. I mean, the first thing about opening up is to actually, yeah, I, I think there is, it, it is kind of scary when, when you have that massive gear change from doing very little to suddenly being expected to do doing a lot. So as far as it's possible for you, you know, really don't feel bad about, um, doing stuff that you're comfortable with at the start and you know not not forcing yourself into situations obviously we'll all find ourselves obliged to do certain things and and get a bit out of a comfort zone but you know don't feel bad about um 
letting people down occasionally if you're in a situation that makes you uncomfortable i would say you know it's better to um let people down than to blow yourself up and to sort of like you know uh have a panic attack or whatever um i feel like yeah but often it's very boring practical stuff i for me personally with panic attacks i do something called square breathing which really helps me which is i don't know if you've heard of it before but it's where you um almost picture a square as you're breathing so you sort of breathe in for a count of four you hold your breath for a count of four you exhale for a count of four and um you repeat that um picturing a square and you can change it to a count of five or a count of less if you can't breathe that far and just sort of like take yourself you know breathing um obviously is so important but slow mm. breathing slow breathing really does seem to like calm nervous systems down because it sends a signal um to your brain but i also think like those situations are often stressful because we feel like we don't have control over them so if you can find anything you can control even if it is just your breath then it has a sort of um calming effect on um on your nervous system uh, and it's good but I, I feel like it also understanding that a lot of other people are feeling like that and they might not always be saying it but i feel like almost everyone I've spoken to about the end of lockdown is, yes, we, we, we definitely want lockdown to end. Yes, we want um, some kind of normal to resume. We want to do fun things that we've been missing. But people, it's fine to feel that and at the same time to feel super stressed about it. And I've, I've noticed some people feel almost guilty that they, you know, that they're not feeling as excited as they should or they feel like they should about everything opening up again. And I think it's totally normal to feel um, anxious about that. And also, even if something's a positive change, like the world opening up again, um, positive change is still change and all change is stressful. You know, mm. you might be moving to a new new house and it's a great new house, but um, moving house is always stressful. So it, I feel like this is almost like moving house. We're all collectively moving house to this new situation. And... Um, yeah, it's going to be stressful and just, just not, not, um, hate yourself or beat yourself up about that because I think it's a totally natural, um, thing to do. And also, you know, don't ever be ashamed of, um, treating your mental health like it's health. You know, if something is too much and it was giving you a chronic headache, you, you'd have no shame in leaving that situation. And I think if something really isn't, right for you it's quite empowering sometimes to just say i'm just going to take a, a minute and go over here or i'm going to call it an early night or whatever and there should be no stigma around that yeah i like that advice it's nice as well because i feel like we we talk about breathing exercises as quite like an abstract thing but that's like a nice example to have of like quite an easy one to remember yeah that you can actually give it a go i'm not really an army person but i think they actually do it in the army as a as a natural so you know and they're not really known for their sort of like hippy dippy leanings out of the army so it's obviously a thing that works in um mm. crisis situations and stuff so yeah it helps me good good one to try um last question is from liza who says as someone who struggles with mental health and has a lifelong dream to write a book do you have any suggestions for how to overcome the voice in your head that convinces you nothing will be good enough yeah i mean firstly I think that is a very common voice to have. And in a weird way, you can actually use that voice to your advantage because you, you kind of need a little bit of an inner critic when you're writing. Uh, and it's so much better to have that voice in your head than the voice that tells you 
everything I'm writing is absolutely amazing and totally brilliant. Mm. And so don't treat that voice like an enemy, but treat it with a little bit of distance because you need that inner critic, but you also need um, a degree of self-belief as well. So it, it's about being honest with yourself. And I feel like it's all about honesty. Like the only reader you will ever know if you're trying to write a book is yourself. So you can't mind read other people. You can't say, what will that other person definitely like? Um, but there's a good chance if you write something that you would like, then other people will like it too. So I think um, listen to that inner critic by all means. Um, but almost imagine someone else is writing it. So you're being as truthful to, to yourself as you can. And then if you read it aloud, how would that actually sound to you? And I think you'd, you realize that actually, yeah, um, some of it's not so good and some of it is good. The thing is, even like when a writer who's been writing a lot of books, like I've written 21 books, when I start writing a book, I hate almost everything I'm writing when I start writing, but you still have to start writing to find the good stuff. So often you just have to sort of go through that. And so much of writing is done in the editing anyway. So it's not so much about what exactly you should write, but also what you should take out as well, which is where that inner critic um, comes useful. And yeah, sorry, that's uh, lo lots of different answers in one answer there. No, I think that's that's definitely good advice. I feel like that applies to a lot of things as well, like whether it's writing a book or whether it's not. You kind of, I feel like you'll always have that voice that's like, oh, what if it doesn't this? What if it doesn't that? But I suppose if you don't start, then you won't know, will you? So Yeah, exactly. And it's all a learning curve. And um, I feel like a good a good thing is to sort of always write the book that you would actually want to read um, that isn't on your bookshelves, but it's a book that you would actually want to read. And that is probably the right book for you um, for you to write. And there's no one way to write a book. And there's no, it's like anything else. Uh, there's no right or wrong way to do it. There's just um, a way that sort of fits you the best. And um, yes. Remember, if you want to get in touch with us or have any questions for future episodes, you can email me at goodinfluencepod at gmail.com. And if you want to know about the latest opportunities to send in questions for guests, then follow us at goodinfluencegs. Before you go, I've got three things that I ask of every guest, and that's if listeners want to find out more about what we've been talking about today. Could you recommend us something to read, something to listen to, and something to watch, please? Yeah. Um well, I'm going to recommend a book I've just been reading um, called um, Phosphorescence, which is a, um, a very sort of long um, word for um, a title, but it's a brilliant book and a really simple book to read. And it's by Julia Baird, and it's subtitled On Awe, Wonder, and Things That Sustain You When the World Goes Dark. And it takes a lot of inspiration from nature, and it's got lots of life advice in there. And it's about, um, it's about everything I believe in, about how, yes, life has moments of darkness, it has moments of suffering, it has lots of bad stuff. But within that, you can actually find a lot of stuff that can give you hope and that can keep you going and can get you over grief and all, all these different things. And she's a brilliant writer and that book is called Phosphorescence and it's by Julia Baird and I would recommend it. I mean, I'm also going to jump in and say that I 
enjoy your enjoy your books very much the midnight library i would definitely recommend to people and also you've got a new book coming out which now i am excited to read the comfort book yes i i i, I will i'll send you one Gemma. i've, I've only oh, just got a batch myself so i i will definitely you will be first on my list to um uh, send you oh well lucky me i'm glad i brought it up <laughs> um what was the other things so something to read something to watch was that watch and listen to are our other ones okay watch well i mean obviously there's great um new stuff all the time on our tvs um so i will recommend some old stuff because i one thing i i watched last year for comfort was a lot of old musicals and old movies and uh, on um sunday nights in our house i'm i'm a boring dad who says right okay it's classic movie night so we watch a different classic old film every night and my only rule is that it can't be from this century and it's got to be somehow Mm -hmm. you know someone somewhere considers it a classic film so it's either one oscars or something so we've done a lot of old musicals so i could give you a bazillion uh, recommendations which i won't do but um i'd say if you're ever going for old musicals well obviously there's the classics like singing in the rain and wizard of oz and all of that but um there's a couple that might not be on people's radars whichever you're wanting a cozy sunday watching an old musical um there's one called meet me in saint louis with um judy garland and it's it's in color uh, but it's from the era of black and white so the colors are all sort of lavish and beautiful it's got lots of lots of old classic songs in like um have yourself a merry little christmas and various things and it's just and it's not a solely christmas movie it's set during a whole year and it's it's a beautiful film about not much at all just the sort of life of a family who've got to move house and it's just a, a really lovely comfort watch and there's another um old musical called an american paris which is um a wonderful um gene kelly uh, musical with lots of tap dancing lots of paris lots of um great things so yeah those two or if you want something really super up to date like the 1980s um stand by me um is my go-to comfort movie super up to date i actually i haven't seen <laughs> haven't seen either of those musicals so i will have to get get myself on one of those on a sunday i'm always making my kids cringe because I'll, I'll talk about something that was like 1996 and i say oh yeah it's really modern this is really modern because it's actually you know it's in, co- it's in color and um what kind of things anyway there you go. 1996 i feel like i, I mean <laughs> I wasn't even that old at the time, but I'll still be like, oh yeah, that was, what was that, like 10 years ago? No, no, no. <laughs> yeah. I found that like sometimes like watching things from before you were born, um, I don't know, there's a comfort, there's a real comfort to it, especially when, when the world's going through crazy times, isn't it? It's nice to sort of like step back um, a, a couple of eras and into, into a different world. Yeah. I really like watching things that came out like around the time that I was born because it kind of like... Yes makes me think yes. like what what was the culture when i was born what what world did i emerge into yeah i mean other than that i, I do like um, a lot of documentaries like my octopus teacher have you seen my octopus teacher on netflix i actually still haven't watched it but i have been recommended it before on this podcast yeah that is good that's a kind of calming watch and also i find like just watching any documentary set in the sea or underwater can it's just got it's calming i used to have um i used to have a tropical fish tank in my bedroom and i used mm. to sort I think that was my first kind of self-care was just staring at tropical fish going <laughs> <to the laughs> just time. swimming about. Yeah, little guppies or whatever they're called. 
Yeah, anyway, sorry, Gemma. No, that's okay. The last one, where are we even up to, is something to listen to. That was the last one. So, something to listen to. Well, again, I like listening to lots of old mu- music and musicals. I'm, I'm a massive musical fan. I'm a massive, like, Hamilton soundtrack fan. There's a song on Hamilton soundtrack, um, Dear Theodosia, which is a, a song um, two people sing, and it's about their ambitions for their children and what they think and it's just such a gentle song and it makes me cry every time uh, and there's lots of great cover versions of it as well all over spotify um so i'd say dear theodosia is a good song to listen to i love casey musgraves i love all, all, all kinds of things but um, in in terms of like my classic sort of comfort listening to i love the carpenters and um all that mellow 70s kind of stuff mm. yeah i feel like comfort music tends to be like anything that one of your parents might have listened to in the car is just somehow ends up being comforting even if it's not what you would usually listen to it kind of takes takes you back away yeah i can remember our car music but me and my sister used to have some of our most um fraught arguments on the back seat of car i can remember like because we were like 80s 90s kids so i think i was going through like a red hot chili peppers phase and my um sister was into like kylie or something and we'd just be like Oh, at odds. Oh, at odds. <laughs> yes, very much. Thank you for listening and thank you, Matt, for joining me. If you've enjoyed the episode, I'd love you to subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you're using. And if you've got an extra minute, you can leave a rating and a review as well. Your reviews make a big difference and help other people find the podcast. See you next week. 